This is Pivot Perspectives with Chris O'Byrne, the show that takes you around the world to share interviews with some of the most successful and relevant people on the planet. Hear their stories and get the most important business lessons they've learned on their road to success and get exclusive access on how to implement their success into your life and business. Pivot Perspectives is brought to you by the Strategic Advisor Board and your host, Chris O'Byrne. So, Alex Snyder, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, we, we've got some fun things to talk about coming up, like, you know, what you do related to strategy and leadership and where you live. But first, let's kind of go back to where at growing up, what is a story or something that happened that kind of shaped who you became today? Mm. That's a really great question. I think what it always stands out to me, hindsight is 2020, right? So I always look back and I realize that growing up as an athlete really positioned me to understand strategy and to analyze in the moment. And so to have like a real powerhouse analytical capability. And, you know, I can speak to that from a couple angles. In equestrian, you go to an event and there is a course posted on a paper and then you literally go out and you walk the course and you do measurements and you look at angles and you strategize, you know, the angle you're going to take, the route, the risks that you're going to take. And then you watch other people and depending on where you are in the order, based on how others are performing, you may choose to take more risks or to ease off. And then once you're in the ring, depending on how things go, if you knock a jump down, if something happens, you may in the moment change your strategy in terms, it also depends on how the um, point system works in different types of uh, events. So there's all of that like real hands-on strategy. And I also spent 20 years playing rugby and it's very similar. You need to know the strengths of your team and what your overall play strategies are. You need to look at the opposition and as you're playing them or if you've played them before, understand their tactics, strengths, vulnerabilities. And you need to make sure that everyone in the team understands the tactics, understands, you know, what their role, their position, where they need to be, why. And then basically you look at what's in front of you and you exploit the gap. And so I look back now and I think, even though I was really quiet and really shy and, you know, didn't fit into a lot of things. I learned a way of thinking. And I also learned that you don't actually have to be really loud to be a leader. You need to make sure that everybody understands what they need to do. And, and that actually by being the person who maybe isn't as loud, but cares that a new person knows what they need to do. So they feel comfortable because you know what it's like to not feel comfortable you actually get seen as a leader. Um, and that's, I think, a really good definition for servant leadership, which is the team success is your success. And actually your energy is going into making sure everyone knows what they need to do and can execute well. So I think sports growing up taught me strategy, taught me, a, gave me a very strong analytical capability and a very fast one, and also set me up to be a servant leader, which I think is more and more recognized as a really great way of leading. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I'm glad that you took the approach of something that affected you, uh, cre- helped you, cre- 
creating your thinking habits because usually when people answer that question, they talk about something that was emotional or that affected them emotionally mm-hmm. and, and not really looking or examining the thinking habits. So that's, um, that, that's something I'm always interested in is people's thinking habits, the mental models, how they approach, uh, how they approach life. So that, yeah, very significant. So take me on a journey then from, from graduating high school to where you are now, both geographically, but also work-wise. Right. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of what I just spoke to sets the scene for that. Cause I also learned to be very resourceful which I think set me up for entrepreneurship. Again, not in the moment realizing, but really creating opportunities that didn't have the traditional resources to pursue. And my kind of Team Canada athletic aspirations were cut really short just due to family circumstance. And so I went from not planning to attend university immediately and really looking to pursue an athletic career to suddenly not knowing what was in front of me. So at the time I was, I grew up in Canada. I had always had to deal with my parents, like keep straight A's and you can do whatever you want with your time. You know, this is, this is your backup. And so I had the grades and since I didn't know what I wanted to do, I decided to go to the most well-recognized university internationally in Canada. Cause I thought, well, I don't know what I want to do. So I want this strong brand and something that's recognized internationally, because I know that's that's something that I want to explore. So I did a four-year degree at McGill in three years while working, <laughs> because oh, I man. didn't really want to be there, and I just wanted to get it done. Uh, I also was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder during that time. Like, it was a... <laughs> I'm not somebody who looks back fondly on my schooling, high school or university. It was a means to an end. Um so uh, the challenge is I graduated and I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, so I had, you know, had the degree, kind of proved myself, kept myself afloat and did a number of things. So I had done kind of the traditional bartending in university, but I also worked in construction. So it's like a really interesting mix. <laughs> I had days where I went from the construction site to working behind the bar in a hip hop club on a <laughs> same day. Um And so I kind of continued trying to figure out what I wanted to do, Um, ended up doing some different things in, you know, accounting and project management and ended up helping out a team of surgeons, supposed to be very short term, as I was looking into some other opportunities. And then it turned out that there was kind of a bigger opportunity to work with them on their succession planning. And they were looking to have more of a marketing professional relations. So I kind of created a role for myself. Um, with this team of oral maxillofacial surgeons, did a lot of self-teaching, took night courses in marketing, uh, went to conferences, just really did all that and thought while I was doing that, like, maybe I want to be an accountant because like, I really like numbers. (laughs) People told me, you have a little too much personality to be an accountant, which is funny because I was still on the quieter (laughs) side. But eventually, somehow I stumbled upon strategy and, you know, business and consulting. And I really loved, I knew I was really good with numbers. I really knew I was interested in how people think. My undergrad is in uh, psychology as the major with a couple of minors. I, I liked business. And I was like, how does this fit? So eventually decided to go pursue an MBA. And so I applied 
um, did the GMATs, kind of couldn't believe I got into my program of choice. Uh, the program was shifting at the time. So it was a really interesting program that had a real applications, less siloed business approach. And I went in and I, I, you know, stopped working for the first time since I was 12 years old. And I just went all in on this degree and I did everything, the extracurriculars, this, the, everything. <laughs> I was vice president of internal for the student association and BASA. I was uh, co-president for, I think the marketing club. I was captain of the rugby team. I just, I spent every waking hour at school, did everything, went, got asked to go to all of the events, meet all the people, worked with the administration on the changes, did the incoming next year's orientation. Just like, I was like, I am going to get everything out of this two years. Um, did the internship, did the exchange, did everything. Where was and this at? This was at McGill. Oh, still um, at McGill. Okay. Yeah. So I applied only to McGill at the time, just resource wise. I wasn't in a position to go. I got some really interesting offers after my GMAT, like, approached by other schools but um I sort of was like I'm going to apply here because I love what the program is doing it was a brand new program it went private two years later and I was like I love this I think it really fits because of the way they approach business and I'm coming in without a business degree this really makes sense um really really liked it and also I wasn't really in a position to like move away Montreal has a relatively low cost of living the cost of living uh the the program because it was still on the regular system was low cost. And so I said, if I don't get in, I'll explore these other options for next year, but I'm kind of stubborn. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I graduated high school young. I graduated in my undergrad young. I went in with the three-year minimum experience. I was fortunate that the letters of recommendation I had the surgeons I worked for were heads of departments and universities. And, you know, I, I had a lot of things. I had really good GMAT scores, but I remember thinking there's no way I'm, I'm getting in. And I had a great conversation with the person interviewing me. It turned out that her partner played for the Springboks, which is South Africa's pro rugby team. So like we had a lot to talk about. And I don't know, I got in. <laughs> And I was the youngest person. I was terrified anyone would find out how old I was. I was there with people who had 10 years of experience, um, were 10 plus years older, had worked for like the World Bank, for the, you know, the IMF, for this, for that. It was 50% oh, wow. international. Like as in there with lawyers who spoke five languages. I, <laughs> I was like, and um, also the housing crisis happened while I was there. So nobody was hiring. There were no internships. There were no jobs. It was uh, a real interesting time. Um, I did my exchange, which I didn't plan to do, but again, decided to go all in, in Singapore at the National University of Singapore, which was amazing. Um, and yeah, one of the most distinct memories I have is going into the career services and talking about how I want to go into strategy consulting. And when I applied, I said, I want to go into marketing consulting because I knew it was easier and <laughs> they would like be more likely to let me in but I knew I wanted to go into strategy consulting and um <laughs> I was talking about all these things and the career services looked at me and said you know you're you're trying to get into one of the two hardest industries I banking and strategy consulting maybe you should put a little more energy into a plan b and it was probably the best thing anyone could have said to me because 
You said, screw that. I'm going for I it. I was just not <laughs> about it. I just went all in and I was just really determined. And I did, you know, I just worked my ass off. And um, as, you know, the youngest person in the program and with some of the least experience and, you know, no real business background, I finished in the top 5% of my program and had not in the internships because that was a whole thing, but even then went through the full thing with McKinsey, all the stuff, like really good, got invited back for the for the next year. The person they hired for internships is who I would have hired for internships, you know, with the lawyer who spoke five languages and like was ready to go for the eight-week internship. Right. Um, but at the end of the program in sort of the third semester before leaving for Singapore, I came out with multiple job offers in my dream field. Um, and yeah, I felt really, really fortunate. So came back from Singapore cause I had a job lined up in Montreal, spent, um, we went through an acquisition actually. So I've I met my clients before I met my team. I spent the first eight months basically like on site with my clients, um, really learning the energy natural resource industry, doing amazing things, and um, mostly in like Eastern Canada. And then KPMG acquired the company that I was working for. And that was a very interesting experience. I wasn't all that tied to the company, but it was a very tight-knit boutique French company. So a lot of revolutionaries who were not interested <laughs> in working for the man. Um, but for me, my plan when I joined Secor had been to, and I had talked to them about opening up more offices because they had Paris already, Canada. Um, they were in New York. So I thought, well, maybe this is the way that I get to do what I plan to do. I could leave now or I can see how it goes. And if I don't like it, I can leave later. And so I continued. I ended up um, expanding out, doing a lot of work in Western Canada. I got sent to Africa um, to work on, on projects there. I got to know the UK team really well from those projects. They recruited me to London. I moved to London. Um spent three, four years working there, doing strategy, operational optimization, um, getting loaned to the mergers and acquisitions team, doing some big divestments <laughs> around the world. Um, and also really like helping bolster the internal industry because I got brought because of my knowledge in the industry to grow it. And then things had changed by the time I came, so the year, corporate transfers. And... I got to the point where I was, you know, doing like 144% utilization plus all the internal work plus this and bigger and bigger projects, but not really feeling um, the excitement and the fulfillment and the just all the things I had felt when I first started because consulting for me had been, I felt like I finally found my place in my MBA. I found my communities. I found a place where everyone was switched on and really bought in and really working hard. And it felt amazing to be in that environment and to be doing projects that really made a change and made a difference. And um, I chose energy and natural resources from the perspective of the financial crisis we went through was like, Oh, we kind of know what happens when you mess with the financial systems. We look at energy and natural resources either by not thinking about it or by thinking they're terrible and a lot of them are, but the reality is they're also commodities. This is a very difficult 
um, business model to extract something that you don't know how much you're going to be able to sell it for um, and working in really weird conditions. And so I thought, well, companies can't really be good global stewards unless they have really sustainable, reliable operations and really good handle on their operations. And that just like really interested me because the reality is if we like our toothpaste and the roads we drive on and our cell phones, extractive industries are a reality. We, we can't just say like they're bad and we don't want them. There's lots of things we can do. And I'm not against green. I worked on a lot in the green space as well, but I was really interested in it. And so a lot of the work I did wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing CSR work, but it was things that were helping companies to operate better. And it gave them bandwidth to at least have the opportunity to be better global citizens. Um, and I just got to the point where, if I'm honest, I think I was probably a little burned out. Yeah. Um, but at the time, I didn't really know that. I just knew that I wasn't happy. And I had this great life that I had worked really hard for, that everybody had applauded me for, that I had sacrificed for. And I felt really ungrateful. <laughs> I felt really frustrated. And I felt like I should be happier. And I was being given opportunities and I was starting to be pushed towards partner track and I was being recognized for doing things differently. And I didn't want any of it. <laughs> I, I didn't even know that I didn't want it. I just knew that I, it, it didn't feel good and feel clear. And so I undertook a process. I actually hired my first coach pretty much at that point. Um, I said, I'm going to make a change and I want someone to give me some objective perspective and structure. And I met my coach very serendipitously at it. I went to an event by myself called something like quit your job, follow your dreams. And no one wanted to go with me. So I bought a ticket and I went, I showed up to a bar and <laughs> I like grabbed a glass of wine and was like, okay. And tried to sit at the table in the back. And I was like, oh, can I sit here? And this woman was like, oh, I'm actually a speaker, but you can, and I was like, no, no, no. And I was like, Alex, pull yourself together. Went and sat in the front row. Um, turned out that speaker was a, someone who was leaving the military to pursue a whole other career. And her and I ended up working together. I was one of her first clients, mm -hmm. um, stayed in touch. We lived together years later in Bali, all kinds of things. Um, so yeah, life has been very serendipitous. I don't know how deep you want to go into this, but I set my objectives for leaving my job I decided not to have a job lined up to give myself a budget rather than a timeline and the longer I could stretch the budget the longer I had to I had to get a real job and my three pillars were I wanted to feel connected inspired and healthy so when I left the MBA I felt like the world was my oyster I felt finally like I was connected into communities and people and and understood and in ways I had never felt before. And I wanted to find a way not to turn back time, but to feel a lot of those same feelings. Um, and so that's what I let guide my decisions. I joined Trusted House Sitter. So I did house and pet sitting in different places to give myself some structure and also live rent free. Um, I did a lot of volunteering. I spent time with the companies. I was on the board of a couple companies. I spent time with them. I spent time with meaningful people in my life. Um, yeah, eventually I spent more time with one company, did some strategic work with them, 
came to the conclusion that it was a great opportunity for me to partner in to help mature the organization, get it back on a growth path and also sustainable and, and um, profitable, essentially. And then at the same time, we had identified an opportunity for a product that we decided to spin out and co-found another startup. So that point I was living all over. So I left when I left KPMG, I sold everything and became nomadic and I lived out of a bag and moved around and the companies were in Toronto, but I continued to come in and out of Toronto and, and live nomadically for about four years. Um, during that time, we did grow Patio, the agency. We structured and started to look at funding opportunities for Scana, the product company. Um, and yeah, it was a really wild ride. <laughs> um, and then we, around late 2019, so it's about a year after I like, we decided to make this partnership. Um, we did our strategic planning and with patio kind of said like, this is what the next level of maturation and growth and everything looks like. And my business partner honestly looked at me and said, I don't know if I can do another bootstrapped stretch sprint. You know, he had the company was fully bootstrapped about five ish years in. Um, and I said, that's really fair. You know, this is kind of the other options we have which is to become part of a bigger ecosystem. There's some different ways we could do that. It was like, yeah, that sounds really great. Like, let's look at the options for that. So we had also cannabis industry, which is what our other tech product was serving, was kind of blowing up in Canada. So we decided the partners and opportunities for investors we were looking at, um, they weren't necessarily the strategic partners we wanted. And it was about to get a lot more complicated, which is definitely the right decision <laughs> looking back, thankfully. So we kind of shelved that and focused solely on the taking patio forward. Um, I was still in and out. So I was actually on my way to Indonesia. We were having some really interesting conversations. We identified some potential acquirers. I flew back March 13th of 2020 to help run the acquisition, the deal. And um, the borders closed the next day for COVID. Oh, my and the deal fell apart three weeks later because the potential buyer had to lay off half their employees. <laughs> so it was not a good look to be acquiring, although it actually would have been the right move for them. Um, we also were heavily impacted. We'd had a couple of key people poached leading up to the um, transaction and we didn't replace them because we thought we were about to go through a transaction. Um, we also had a lot of our clients massively impacted, plus a couple that right before COVID that had some, they were in cannabis, they had some scandals and things. <laughs> so we suddenly found ourselves going from, we're about to sell this company to we're not sure we're going to make it. Um, and yeah, just went all in. I officially became an employee, just a hundred percent dedicated to that company, um, became a master of all things, government subsidy, COVID, <laughs> everything. Um, you know, unpack my suitcases because I wasn't going anywhere. And we leveraged, you know, our, our motto was actually thrive and disruption, which is what we aim to help our clients do. Um, and really we tried our best to employ, you know, anti-fragile thinking within our organization. So we, you know, 
leverage the fact that there was a flood of really good people on the market and we leveraged subsidies to help us pay to onboard them. We sold them on the vision and made it clear that nobody was really paying market right now, but we were going to review salaries quarterly. Um, we leveraged the pivots we could do with our tech to be really um, applicable to the context. And long story short, we 3 x in 10 months and sold. <laughs> um, it is a year that I, no one will ever get back, but I definitely get <laughs> back. It probably shortened my life. Uh, I also moved around a couple times in the country um, and was, you know, trying to support people in my personal life as well. So it was quite a taxing time, but we had a successful exit in April of 2021, went across as vice president of the buyer um, as part of the deal. Um, did my best with, you know, what we could do. We knew it was going to be a tough integration. Um, and then after about nine months, um, during which I started my company, which I had really known I wanted to do. And, you know, my business partner had, all, had was really supportive that me helping other founders was definitely my gift. Um, other people I had, you know, a lot of other founders, you would co-work on weekends and they would always say like, I always feel so much better after talking to you. Or I, you know, whenever I have a question, you always have something that you can share with me that gets me started. I, I know that you're always saving me time and stress and so I knew that I wanted to take the fact that I had all these corporate experience, I'd right-sized it to work in startups, I'd figured out how to apply the tools to really bring us up the maturity curve alongside our own growth. Um, and I really wanted to apply that to help more founders build better companies, better teams, better experiences. It just seemed like a way to really multiply my impact. So I started... Again, kind of serendipitously doing that while I was in my VP role. And uh, in December of that year, I full I left the buyer and started doing what I do full time now. So it's a really long story, but. <laughs> no, there's a lot of lessons in there. Um, so many. One I, there are lots of them. And not just for you, but for, for the listener and reader, the. So question I want to ask, and I'm glad you brought it up, is how can somebody employ anti-fragile thinking to their mm. current business? Mm. That's a great question. If you read the book, uh, it's amazing, but it is really heavy. So yes. I think the best way to think about it is that there is almost like a fulcrum point in process systems structure where you need it, but it can become overbearing um, to an organization if there is um, if it's not kind of like reviewed or if you don't if you don't think through what what you're actually trying to achieve and you do process for process sake, you can end up with operations that are overly heavy for the size of the business. So that was something where my learning became really important. I learned what was the actual components that made bigger companies successful or, or unsuccessful. And instead of trying to say like, oh, let's apply this structure that they had to this other company that is completely different. It's actually really understanding like, what are you trying to achieve? And what are the pieces that you have to play with so you can build something fit for purpose? Um, 
So I think trying to apply anti-fragility um, in a short, <laughs> concise way is understanding what your company is really amazing at um, and all the ways that that can be applied. And then you can make decisions to move forward in some ways, but always kind of knowing how to recognize opportunities and move really quickly. Where if you have too much of a process or you are only, only ever focused on the, the one thing, you can miss opportunities. So I think on terms of like growth and expansion and opportunities, anti-fragility is if you f really understand, it's like when you say like, if you can't explain something, you don't know it, right? You can't explain it to a five-year-old, you don't know it. If you really understand your capabilities and the breadth of applications, then you can be pursuing something and building something, but recognize opportunities. And COVID is a great example of that. So we worked in immersive digital reality tech now, a lot of the time that meant virtual reality. COVID came, no one was meeting in person and nobody was putting a headset on. Absolutely not, right? But we also worked in augmented reality. We also worked in um, immersive tech and we knew how to put on events and all these things. And so what we were able to say was, well, we know how to use this really like high tech, you know, technology and software to create experiences. So one thing is we can create things outside using augmented reality that uses the phone that you're holding that's covered in your own germs and that's fine. So one thing was, okay, what is what are people trying to do that are either practical or artistic? It could be either. Mostly we took gaming level tech and applied it to business problems, but we also did some marketing, some artsy stuff. How could we, what are people trying to achieve now that could be, uh, supported by the ability for someone to interact with something through their phone, right? And it wasn't that we had never done that before, but we had done a lot of things where like there were iPads in place or headsets or this. So we took that and we said, okay, well, nobody wants to touch anything now, but everyone touches their phone. So let's find a way to create that. So that was one thing we pivoted to. We also knew how to run events and we had the tech to create in, like online space. And so we started to pivot into creating online events, but beyond just Zoom, right? So how do you use space? How do you use interactivity? What works for people? How do you create experiences before and after? So we took all these things we had used in one way and we were able to pivot that. Um, we were able to, to, one example is if you have products that are very physical and you're used to going into where your product is used, let's say you sell medical products, you're going into a hospital, you cannot during COVID, just rock up to a hospital as a rep. So what do you need? Well, you need to be able to talk to people. You need to be able to show them your pamphlets. You need to be able to show them your physical products and, and explain why they work. And so we actually ended up creating basically like virtual visit technology and just very, very high tech. You know, we had 3D renderings and models and things that you could basically have an online showroom with a video with chats, with online libraries. And we really figured out how to replace physical visits with that. So we used tech that previously we were using very in-person and we pivoted that to how do we do it to replace in-person. And that was where we, instead of continuing being like, okay, well, how do we get everyone to have a headset so we can keep doing VR, which is like not a very scalable, realistic 
solution at the time. It was what are the principles? What are our core fundamental capabilities that allow us to do that? Um, and allow us to kind of adjust and pivot. And, and that can be taken into a lot of different ways into how you staff, um, how you think about things differently, how you innovate. A um, little bit of a stretch, but a company that I consulted to a long time ago in, in my corporate days, they were a natural resources company and we looked at their operations and all these things. And I said, it, it looks like you're running an airline. And they were because they had remote locations and this and that. And over time, they had bought a plane and built runways and done this, but it was really suboptimal and super expensive. And But it was just the way things were done. And no, no one really thought about it because, well, we need it to get to this. And then I think when you're anti-fragile, you are able to get out of the loop of like, this is how it's done. This is just how we do things, right? Because it has always been done this way and we know it and it works, but it works until it doesn't. And I think, as I said, this might be a bit of a stretch for anti-fragility, but questioning, right? Like questioning and seeing opportunity and experimenting um, or, you know, in our case, it was like never let, you know, a good disaster go to waste, right? Like. We capitalized on, you know, there were great people who lost their jobs, not because they weren't great. Great. We took them, we picked them up and they became part of our team. People needed to figure things out because suddenly they couldn't run their businesses. Great. We came up with a solution to do that, right? Like they weren't solutions we already had, but we saw the need and figured out that we had skills that could fill that. And the same thing on this side, you know, in consulting is a little bit of that. It was questioning yeah, but we need to do X, Y, Z. Okay. But like the way in which you do it matters. And this way, I was like, are you good at getting things out of the ground or are you good at running an airline? Those are two very, very different business models. You're probably not good at both, but you have just, but you own a plane now. So you're just going to do it. It's a very, very normal way of the, for businesses to run, but it's a really, really ineffective way that will eventually potentially run you into the ground. And it's also decisions that got made when gold was $1,800 an ounce and now it's $900 an ounce. And if you cannot change the way you operate, you are rigid and you are inflexible and you are fragile to an economic change because you have chosen to commit a huge part of your operational capabilities and capitals to something that is not core to your business. I like that. That is a good application. Um, so now switching gears a little bit, I imagine along the way you've met some very, uh, not only just interesting people, but people who have uh, had an impact on you. Who are some of the, the key influences or mentors that you've had along the way? Oh, such a good question. So loaded because I'm definitely going to miss out on somebody. Um, why mentors I think come in a lot of different forms there's a few in my consulting days that absolutely stood out and I think uh, one of them with David Waldron was a partner in the uh, company that I joined and he 
was really big in the space I wanted. And I actually got assigned a mentor who was in like retail. And I was like, I want to work in <laughs> mining and energy and gas. And I guess, and which is fine. He was, the mentor was, was great person, but you know, I had to kind of work up the courage to go talk to this partner who I had never met and, you know, is, you know, amazing. I think is, is brilliant and say, you know, I, I want to work with you and I want to work in your space. And, you know, I was, Hey, by the way, I was really fortunate. I actually spent the first eight months in this industry, but outside of the office, would you be my mentor? And David taught me one of the first really big lessons that I still to this day take with me. And I coach my clients on this. Um, first of all, he said, I want you to go talk to a couple of people who are in the company whom I mentor and a couple of people who have left the company that I mentor. And I want you to understand what it's like to work with me because I work in certain ways and I want you to come in with your eyes open. And I was like, okay, no problem. So I went and did that. Great conversations. And I came back and I said, I still want to be your mentor as your mentee. And he said, great. Um, I would love to, to have you as that. I need you to manage up. I am not going to come and look for you. I need you to come to me. I need you to tell me what you need and you set expectations. And he may not have said it in exactly all these ways, you know, we're talking quite a long time ago, but managing up is what shaped me. And it is what made me the consultant team member, employee leader that I am. And it is something that I have continually required of anyone who wants to be on my team, who wants to join my company, because it the bandwidth it opens up for you as a leader and the perspective and responsibility it teaches you as a team member are, are absolutely amazing. So David taught me a lot. I mean, he gave me a lot of opportunity. I developed frameworks with him. I went along to all kinds of pitches and just watching him interact and, and manage a room. I learned so, so, so much from just being in his presence in that. And he was also just a great person and somebody that I still look up to and really respect. Um, so he was a pretty big mentor there. I think I had a, a really great, um, mentor in John Richards, which was one of the UK directors who I met on this project in Africa and came across. And we always just had just, his mentorship was more, you could have a conversation about anything. It was just a really um, real relationship. Um, there was a lot going on in the company. There was a lot of things, things were, you know, there was, and so he was somebody I could always trust to just give me the real uh, feedback, give me the real deal that I could go in and kind of say anything to and work, work through things and think things through. Um, he was also another real exceptional storyteller and, and was really, really great at um, bringing teams together. So he was somebody who I had a real complimentary working style with, and we were a little bit closer at that point in terms of like our roles. So um, had a real, really loved working with him and could, could really like be myself. Um, he's somebody that I could just saw me for who I was, saw me for the person who didn't fit into the mold and was like, that is great. Um, and I think that was really, really important at that time in my career. And I think um, the other person I would highlight is actually a client of mine. 
So the funny thing is I had this amazing client um, when I first, my first role, um, we worked together for about eight months on some really crazy projects. We were really close and we continued to work together on and off for about four years in her role um, in executives. Um, and I actually mentored her daughter. So she has me to mentor her daughter, who was amazing. I'm still in touch. She now works in the UN. And um, this client has left corporate life, started a company, and has come back, is now a client with me again, years, like more than a decade later. Um, and I don't think that she probably ever realized she was a mentor to me because she was my client and we had a great relationship. But, you know, I was a consultant and she was an executive. And we worked really, really well. And, and we have a great collaborative relationship. And now, again, I am an advisor and she's, a, you know, a CEO and business owner. But I think she was almost a mix of the two. So watching her and learning from her experience um, and watching her navigate her career really was fascinating, even though it was really different from mine. Um, and have that somebody who, again, was in a a client is a real position of power, especially when you're coming through consulting, but she was really real. And there were times where things were really hard and I really showed up for her. Um, and there were times where we just, again, we always were able to have really open conversations. We're both extremely direct, which I think in today's society often pits women like that a little bit against each other. Like, um, but we've just always had knowing that we had a common interest, knowing that we were there to support each other, had hard conversations. And I think that experience for me was really important in my development. And um, I've been working with her for about four months again now, and it is just the most wonderful thing to to be back in that relationship in a, a more active way. But we've maintained it for the better part of, you know, 15 years. So those are some good mentors. Uh, going back to David, what would you say was one of the most valuable lessons you learned from him? Um, one of the most valuable lessons is so hard. There are so many. And I think the, man the yeah. managing up one is really a good one. But if I pulled another one, it was the ability to uh, kind of manage a room hmm. is equally, if not more, about choosing your moments of listening and silence as it is about choosing your words and having the storytelling. He has an Irish background, so he could tell a story. But he helped me understand also where you needed to leave silence and space and, and listen as much as you led and told Yeah, that is difficult for people to learn, I think. I think a lot of people don't learn because they're always trying to fill the space. Sometimes it's nervousness. Sometimes it's, you know, bravado. Uh, There's still, yeah. It it takes some, some discipline to stop talking and actually pay attention to what's going on. I like that. So then... To wrap things up, what would you give out or what would your parting advice, your words of wisdom be from, because you've had quite the uh, 
quite the breadth of experience yeah. and you've you've learned a lot so what are some of those parting words of wisdom that you would give people mm. it, to kind of entrepreneurs or leaders or just life no let's let, let's say entrepreneurs i think that'd be a good one so i think when i speak to entrepreneurs there's so many facets, right? You're wearing all the hats. There's a million places you could use some advice. Yeah. The lesson or the biggest thing that I counsel people is to take the time to have the self-awareness. And what you kind of need within the self-awareness is how do you keep the audacity right? You need a level of audacity to be an entrepreneur, to create something out of nothing, to believe that it is going to work and to keep showing up and working on it, but drop the ego. And so you need the self-awareness to understand that you cannot be and do and know everything. And while yes, obviously at a certain point, it's about building a teams and having everyone around you there is a version of that even when you're on your own of under, not understanding that you can't know everything and learning to identify where you need support and where you can get it and ask for and accept it. And that will literally change your experience and your life and your business on a personal and professional level. Yeah. And from my own experience, I'd say that's pretty sound advice. Well, thank you for sharing everything with us and thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Pivot Perspectives with your host, Chris O'Byrne. Please leave your feedback and visit strategicadvisorboard.com to get the latest and greatest business advice on the planet. Follow us on social media for updates and we will see you on the next episode.